Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of For What It's Worth podcast. I honestly don't even know what episode it is. It doesn't really matter. It's more than 10, less than 1,000. That's where we're at. By the way, before we get started, just a word of advice. If you are going to buy a Hyundai Elantra, if the Hyundai Elantra is the steed that you have decided is going to be the, the chariot that carries you through the next decade of your life, do me a favor. Buy the GT model. Don't buy the base model. I mean, come on. It's a Hyundai Elantra. The GT is like a wild, a wild beast that's hard to tame. It's worth the extra money. Pony up. Do yourself a favor. Okay, let's move on. Here we are. I've got a massive list of things to cover. And like always, I'm starting with a hero. And this week's hero is the artist Georgia O'Keeffe, who uh, is from the East Coast, but uh, really came to prominence, I guess you would say, after moving to, of course, New Mexico back in the day. And Georgia O'Keeffe, a lot of people don't know this. Just kidding. Everyone knows it. She was married to Alfred Stieglitz, the photographer. And if you don't know Alfred Stieglitz, you might want to hang up that uh, photographer sign around your neck. Or better yet, go burn it in the yard. He's a name that you should know in the history of photography. He is essential reading, if you will. I want to read you a couple of things from Georgia O'Keeffe. She was a painter, so uh, not known necessarily for writing, but she had a couple of quotes that I think resonate for all of us. Number one. Where I was born and where and how I have lived is unimportant. It is what I have done with where I have been that should be of interest. Just let that sink in a minute, right? Okay, I'll give you a second to back up and listen to that again. She said that in 1976, by the way. I was very young uh, and probably doing really stupid things around the house to my sister. Uh, Anyway, again, that was a great quote. And then I want to hit you with a second quote, which is, My painting is what I have to give back to the world for what the world gives to me. Also, mi pintura es lo que tengo para darle al mundo por lo que el mundo me da a mí. In Spanish, that she said that in 1940. And I think this is true for all of us photographers. I think this is critical because we should be viewing things in the same lens, the same filter, in the same idea. Okay, that was our hero of the week. Now I'm moving on to the points that you cannot live without. Number one, Austin, Texas. Uh, I first went to Austin, Texas when I was in middle school. I drove up from San Antonio with my brother in his uh, regular cab Toyota 4x4 pickup. White, 1980, basic, no modifications. We threw our BMX bikes in the back of the truck, drove to Austin, and then rode our bikes all over the city because at the time, Austin was small. It was like a town. It wasn't even a city yet, and it was magical. Uh, I did not know how good it was. Fast forward a decade or so, and I ended up going to college in Texas. I went to the University of Texas in Austin because I am just an incredible intellect. And uh, the smartest people in the world go to that university, clearly. I'm evidence of that. And so I ended up going to school in Austin. Austin had changed a little bit, but it was still a town. And it had a great music scene, a great food scene. It was was what I would call authentic. Um, I personally, at this point, don't go anywhere near that city now. My, my family lives close by. Uh, occasionally, I will go to San Antonio. That's another city I try to avoid at this point. Austin has become, in my opinion, a, basically a small version of Los Angeles. And this started about 20 years ago when Austin started to show up on these lists of top 10 places to live. You know your city is screwed when it starts to end up on these lists because the people who basically are jettisoning themselves from the coast due to traffic and pollution and crime and cost of living. They're looking at places they once called flyover states, which is incredibly insulting. And they're like, oh, this is going to be great. So I started to notice a couple of things. 
about 10 or 12 years ago, I went to Austin and 6th Street, before the mass transformation of Austin, and now it's basically a tourist trap, but it used to be a really cool, cool place. And to me, one of the barriers or bars or gauges of how a city is doing is when you can find breakfast tacos, really good breakfast tacos, within a five-minute walk of wherever you are in the city. And about 10 or 12 years ago, I was in Austin on 6th Street. I woke up in a hotel, and I started looking around, and it was just like, I felt like I was at Disneyland. And I thought, man, this is not trending in the way that, that I want. And the second thing that started to happen was, uh, during my travels, I would be in cities, especially places like L.A. and New York, and people would, the, the idea of Texas would come about, whether it was about my education or where my family was or whatever, and people would say, oh, man, Texas, oh, I love Austin. And I kept thinking, man, like I've never run into anyone that said, you know, I went to Austin, uh, not really my thing, don't like it. Everyone was like, I love it, I love it, I love it. And so I started to ask people, have you been? And I would, you cannot imagine how many of these people said, no, I haven't been, but I heard it's great. And that's when I knew it was over. So I think Austin, uh, to use a bad cliche, has jumped the shark in a lot of ways. And I think now you have so many Angelinos and so many New Yorkers there that it just has completely lost the flavor of what made Austin, Austin. That's my opinion. If you live there, uh, you can you can go on hating Uncle Dano. I'm totally fine with that. And by the way, I used to love San Antonio. That was always my favorite city in Texas. And now I avoid it like the plague. It has the worst urban planning of any city I've been to, and I can't remember how long. If you look at what's happening on the arteries like 281, how they're building out from the city, there's absolutely no planning and no stopping the development. And it is a colossal goat beep. You know what I'm saying there? Colossal goat beep. It's such a great expression, but I don't want to say it on here in case someone, uh, there's delicate ears listening. All right, moving on. So I am teaching next year. I'm teaching two workshops next year, photography slash bookmaking workshops. But I'm not going to tell you where and I'm not going to tell you when. Because these are very small groups, and it's a specific kind of workshop that I'm teaching where it's not about equipment or technology. It's not about software. It's not about Photoshop. It's not about Lightroom. It's not about the lenses and elements and fluoride filters and all that crap. It's actually about the experience of being in the country that we're going to. And it's about writing. It's about creativity. It's about art. It's about peacefulness, time, mindfulness, and understanding the culture that we're in, and then comes the photography. So it takes a very specific kind of student to attend one of these workshops. If you think you're one of these students, you're more than welcome to reach out to me, and I will try to steer you through it. But um, I just decided to do this a couple of weeks ago, and I haven't taught workshops in a long time, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, the, the photo student over time changed dramatically. And I don't mean that in a bad way. That's a natural progression. People are changing. A, a student in 1903 um, probably didn't have Xbox, right? So he's, you know, they were clueless. And the modern student, I just noticed a, a, a changing over time of there was more prominence and more importance placed on things like gear and technology. And I realized I just don't want to have that conversation. So I sort of pulled myself out of the teaching world and now I'm putting one foot back in. So it should be interesting. I just wanted to make that point. So if I go off the grid here for a couple of weeks next year, you'll know that I'm out trying to help other people make pictures, make books, and find their creative core, if you will. Um, I just did a film. I just finished a film right now. It's actually exporting on my computer, which is probably why it's 150 degrees in my office, because my Mac laptop gets so hot exporting Premiere films, it's not even funny. 
Uh, and I, I just did this film about uh, an image in Peru, and I used to teach in Peru, and I absolutely love it. If you are interested in teaching, not in teaching, if you're interested in attending a workshop and you want to go to Latin America, you should look up a guy named Adam Weintraub, who's uh, based in both uh, Washington State and Peru, and he runs a workshop series called Photo Experience, and he's great. He's completely dialed in Latin America. He teaches, I want to say, in Peru, uh, Colombia, I think Chile, a couple of other places. I don't really know for sure. I haven't talked to him in a while. But if you're going to take a workshop in Latin America, that's my the first place I would start. Okay, moving on. We had Hero. We had the death of Austin. We had me teaching next year. Um, the next point I want to make, which is point four, is the anti-technology movement. And I just want to call complete and total bullshit on a lot of these folks. So uh, someone reached out to me earlier today and asked, They had there's a student doing a research paper in Europe, and she found the piece that I wrote back in 2014 about deleting my social media accounts. And she reached out and said, can I use this in my dissertation or whatever? And I said, absolutely, I'm trying to help her out. And... Uh, and we talked about this, sort of, just briefly talked about this idea of, of anti-technology movements. Now, when I deleted social in 2014, I got hate mail, legitimate hate mail, for two years from people who said I was an idiot, that I wasn't smart enough to understand the platforms, that I was selfish, that I had a massive ego, that blah, blah, blah. I, was, I, I could care less about it, but I found it both humorous and just entirely puzzling how people could ignore evidence, fact, data, math, science, truth, et cetera, to, like, to, to basically devote their lives to social media. And I have the same questions today because I see people doing it all the time. I was at an event a couple of weeks ago. It was an event at night. There were hundreds and hundreds of people there. And there was a lot of interesting stuff happening. And when I went outside and took a walk around the block just to get fresh air, every car I walked by was a little glowing screen and someone sitting in their car on their phone who had been inside the event, who just, you know, ran outside to check social or whatever. And it's just so baffling to me that we're still going down this road. But here's what I want to do. I want to call bullshit on these people who in 2014, when I deleted my social media, there were people out there in the industry, in the photo industry, et cetera, who were basically pointing the finger at me and saying, you're an idiot. And guess what? Lo and behold, I'm starting to see these people realize that they can now scam the system in the opposite direction, that they can now come out and say, hey, I'm having serious doubts about this social media stuff, and I think I'm going to go back and start my website, or I'm going to start a newsletter, or I'm going to do this and that. It's bullshit. They're basically realizing that they can't game the system of social like they did before, and their lives are screwed up, and their brains are screwed up, and they basically can't sustain it over time because it's incredibly debilitating to have to try to sustain social accounts to the level that you have to to really crack the code. And so now they're seeing, they're seeing an, a, an ability to scam in the opposite direction. Here's my advice. Delete all of these people out of your life because if they, if they basically have been playing this game and playing the lie up until 2019, you know that this is not based in a truthful uh, place. This is based on, I'm still trying to game you to be part of my community, but instead of gaming you to the right, I'm now gaming you to the left. And it just is like, it just rubs me the wrong way. Um, none of these people are people you should be following anyway. And again, you know, we have more evidence, literally, since the last time I, get, I did a podcast, there's more evidence about companies like Facebook and things that they've done. So if you're still on it, you know, go into the comments below and just give me a good reason why you're still on it. Because even if you're one of those people that says, oh, I'm just using it to keep in touch with family, you realize what's happening behind the scenes with that, that there is, there are no innocent 
civilians in this conversation. So I'm just I'm I'm curious if there people if you're out there and you're still on it, just let me know why. Okay, let's see here. Um, let me go on to another point here. <clears throat> I'm choking up, <clears throat> you know, literally choking up. Actually, that leads me to my next point. I'm going to skip over point five, uh, which was basically me saying if everything about my life in the digital space went away, meaning the internet, the phone, the computer, I would be totally fine. I would be happy. That was my point five, is that I suck at playing the digital game. I always have, and I probably always will. So you give me a pad of paper and a pen, and I'm completely happy. That was point number five. Point number six, the reason I'm choking up, is I just had lunch. And what I had was I had brown rice, broccoli, and egg. I took two eggs, fried them up, chopped them up, put them in with the broccoli and the brown rice with some Thai chili and a little bit of soy sauce. And it's good. And I eat that kind of food, and I feel fantastic. Now, I grew up eating meat. My father was in the ranching business. My mom was a vegetarian for, I would say, half of my childhood, which was odd because she cooked for everybody on the ranch, but she was vegetarian. She's a great cook. And so my wife has been a pescatarian since 1976, basically. No, no meat, no chicken, uh, no pork, anything like that. And it's not for environmental reasons or it's not for humanitarian reasons. My wife just never liked chicken, meat, whatever, but she loves seafood. But I have been studying quite a lot about our, our little oceans and how bad the situation is in terms of stocks of, of, of fish and then also how much fish I'm eating that's farm-raised and how toxic and horrible that stuff actually is. So the other day I said to my wife, you know what? I think I'm going vegetarian. I think I'm going it. Now, I've thought about this for years, and the, one of the reasons that I didn't go vegetarian was the amount of time required to prep food. And I always, there's a, there's a restaurant here in Santa Fe that we love. That's an Ayurvedic uh, restaurant. And I, every time I eat there, I say to my wife the exact same thing. And she looks at me and like, you idiot, you've told me that a hundred times. You know, that look that wives give you like, you pathetic, lonely, horrible little man. Uh, you've told me this a million times. You know, I said, look, if I had this food at my disposal, I would totally be vegetarian and not think twice about it. But I don't. And so I'm up to my, left to my devices to cook. Not that cooking vegetarian is incredibly difficult. It's just time-consuming, et cetera. And occasionally, I find that my body just starts screaming for some kind of protein that comes with, from something with a face. And so I'm trying to wean myself off because I do love the idea of vegetarian. Because when I eat vegetarian food, I feel fantastic. I never feel heavy. I never feel sluggish. I never feel tired. I just feel like, mm, I'm going to go out and like... You know, I'm going to go out and I'm going to find one of my friends and just roundhouse him right in the head because I feel so good. But anyway, are how many out there are you are vegetarians? I do have a lot of friends who are vegetarian uh, for a variety of different reasons. Personally, I don't care whatever your reason is, if it is environmental or it's uh, humanitarian or it's just because you feel better, whatever it is. Please let me know. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Okay, point number seven. I want to talk about bind. I'm going to mispronounce this. I've never been able to pronounce this word binaural microphones for sound recording. Now, I don't know how to describe these. It's B-I-N-A-U-R-A-L, binaural mics. Now, there's a guy online that you should know about. His name is Craig Maud, last name M-O-D. First name Craig, he lives in Japan. He's an American dude. I met him once at the Blurb office, but I do not know him at all. Um, I love what he does. I love his work. He is a writer, he's a photographer, he's a tech guy. Super smart. He's also a long-distance hiker, so we, 
we kind of share some things in that regard in the outdoor world, the photography world, and a little bit in the writing world, but he's far, far, far superior to me when it comes to writing. But he's doing this new audio series where he's on the trail in Japan, and he's just recording ambient sound every day. I think he records 15 minutes of ambient sound and just posts it. And he's using these binaural mics. And I'm fascinated by these things because I love sound so much. And the other guy is, uh, oh, God, I'm spacing out. Uh, he's a seven photographer based in the East Coast. John, I'm spacing out. Somebody help me. He, he's with the seven agency. That's Roman numeral seven. His first name is John, and he lives on the East Coast of the United States. He's a great photographer. And I'm an idiot because I can't remember his last name. But he also uses these mics. And the mics plug into your ears, and then they plug into your recording device. And the sound that you get from these mics is otherworldly. So if you're out there and you use binaural microphones, please reach out and tell me what the hell to do, which ones to buy, how to use them. I'm in love. I'm in love with these things. Um, and I, I got to get some. I, I've been thinking about it for years, and I, I, I'm at the breaking point. All right, moving on. Last night, so two things happened recently. I gave a talk up in Boulder, Colorado, uh, for something called Rome Media, R-O-A-M Media. Look them up. Founded by Jimmy Chin, amongst others, and some athletes. Really interesting creative agency. They're doing some really very cool things, and they just had their first annual awards, which is where I went to, and I gave a talk to the winners of the awards program, which was really fun. Another person who gave a talk right after me gave a talk about mindfulness and marketing. And I really liked, there were aspects of this lecture that I thought were absolutely dead nuts on. And I love this idea of mindfulness and marketing. And one of the things that we were talking about was print and the difference between print and digital. And this other speaker said to me, oh, the neural pathways with print are four to one over digital. And I was like, whoa, 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 go back and tell me that again. And a neural pathway is when you're giving your brain signals. And again, I'm not a, neurolog uh, not a you know, neuroscience guy here, but this is how it was explained to me. When you're, when you're giving your brain impulses, it forms grooves in the brain. And with, with digital, you have one with the digital experience. And with print, you have four. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. And, this, and they are smell with print, which is something we often forget, touch, sight, and, the, and sound because of the turning of the pages. And I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. So last night, I go to a party here in Santa Fe with part of an organization called Creative Santa Fe, which is run by a neighbor of mine. It's a really cool organization that's trying to really bring new blood, new fire in, into Santa Fe. And they had this little party, and I went to the party, and I meet this woman, and she go, I go, what do you do? And she's like, oh, I'm in, I'm in neuroscience, and I'm in corporate training. And I'm like, really? I said, hey, someone just dropped this thing on me about neuroscience and print. And she goes, oh, yeah, it's actually, and she broke down the same things. And I think she even added a fifth element, which I can't remember. But that's my point with this whole print thing. And a lot of times people think, oh, I, mean, I work for Blurb. I'm pushing the print thing. And it's true, I work for Blurb, and it's true, I am pushing the print thing. But the truth is, print to me is, is incredibly important and incredibly different from digital. I'm not saying eliminate digital. What I'm saying is if you don't have print as part of your creative life, get a journal, get a tiny desktop inexpensive printer, start banging out postcards, or get a little bit bigger one and start banging out 8x10s or 1114s or 1620s or whatever. Maybe even sell them if you think you have something good and you want to sell some prints. And if you haven't put your work into book form, do it. And I'm not talking about a book that you're going to try to get into Barnes & Noble and sell and support yourself off of. That's a colossal goat beep, goat beep. I'm going to keep using that, goat beep, because I just love that expression, colossal goat beep. I think it's so perfect. 
a lot of times people go down the publishing road and they just make themselves miserable and they make everyone else around them miserable. I'm just talking about making a single copy of a book. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's just the experience of going through the process of doing things like choosing a cover image, choosing a sequence, editing your work, adding copy, thinking about design. I'm telling you, it will be wonderful for you to do this. Give it a shot. Okay, so we've had a multitude of points here today. We had Hero, we had Austin, we had me teaching, we had the anti-tech movement, we had me kind of briefly talking about the whole digital aspects of my life going away and why it'd be fine. I'm curious about your thoughts about me going vegetarian. Anyone out there using binaural microphones, please let me know. The benefits of neural tracing with print versus digital. Now we're going to move on. I've got a couple more points here, and we're only 20 minutes in for Christ's sake. What, the, what else do you have to do? The next thing I want to talk about very quickly, the same event that I spoke at in, in Boulder, there was the, the award ceremony ended with a sneak preview of a film called Dark Matter, which is about uh, Travis Rice, who's a backcountry snowboarder, who's, you know, basically insane. Uh, he does things on, I can't snowboard, so like anyone is better than me, but he's, he's damn good, apparently. And uh, he did this film called Dark Matter. And Dark Matter, again, I'm an idiot. I was a solid C student. I barely passed any of my classes that had math involved. But Dark Matter is, is a huge part of the world that we exist in, and we don't really know anything about it. I don't know about you, but that is one of the most interesting things I've ever heard in my entire life, that there is a, a particle out there, or whatever the hell it is, whatever Dark Matter actually is, and we don't know hardly anything about it. And it comprises a lot. I'm just going to say that. That's a, an exact figure, by the way, a lot. Anyway, if you know about dark matter, give me a heads up on what to read or what to study or where to look to find out more about this because I'm a complete dumbass when it comes to dark matter. All right, moving on. This could be point number nine or number 10. And this is about marriage advice. So I've been married now for, I don't know, a long time. I've been with my wife since 1996. I knew within an hour of meeting her that she was the person I was going to marry. And she's nine years older than me, and she's from a totally different part of the country, a totally different background, a different religion. On, the, on paper, there's not a lot matching up here. And I had never in my life once ever thought about marriage until that conversation with her. And then out of right field, this little thought popped into my head, and it said, that's who you're going to marry. And then it popped out, and that was it, and I knew. So it's weird. Marriage is a weird thing. I think marriage is, is, is total BS in a lot of ways. I don't think the, the human body, I don't think people were designed to be with the same person for the rest of their life, with exceptions. I do think occasionally, and you hear these stories about like two farm kids meeting when they were six, and then they've been married for 80 years and still living in the same farmhouse. And you know, I love those stories. I do. I think that's really remarkable. But I think for most people, marriage is cruel. And, but here's, here's the important thing to me, and this, I think, is the riddle that solves the entire equation of marriage, which is marriage at all times, all times, requires you to think about the other at least 51% of the time. You have to think about your partner more than you think about yourself. That doesn't mean you compromise your morals, you compromise your beliefs. It doesn't mean you don't fight. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that you have to think about them more than yourself, which is, you know, we live in a culture where we are so incredibly self-centered, and I'll throw myself in that loop as well, but you have to do that. And I'm just going to give you an example. So when I'm on the road, 
I get up really early, typically about five, and I, I Google search for the closest coffee shop that's open at that time. Now, all the local coffee shops, the cool places where all the hipsters hang out, they don't open until 7 or 7.30. I never go to those places. I always end up at Starbucks because Starbucks is the only place that's open at 5 o'clock. So you hipster coffee shops out there, get your head out of your beep and open up early so people like me can come and have better coffee kind of thing. So anyway, I go and I write in my journal. This is one of my all-time favorite things to do in my entire life. So every time I'm on the road, I do that. I go in, I buy my coffee, flat white, extra hot. Thanks, Gary Trin, for turning me on to flat whites all those years ago in Australia. I get a flat white, I get extra hot, and I go and I write until my coffee's gone, which is typically like 45 minutes or an hour. And by that time, it's only like 6, 6.15, and no one's, everyone's still asleep, right? But here's the key. Before I leave the coffee shop, if my wife is with me on the road, I go get her non-fat no mocha, non-fat no whip, whatever it is. And it's basically a ch liquid chocolate bar with a faint taste of coffee at the end. And, and I bring it back to my wife. Now, you have to understand something, that this to my wife is like I'm handing her a gold bar or diamonds or the keys to the launch codes. This is pure joy. So what I did last time, the last day in Boulder, is I got up, had my coffee, did my writing, bought the coffee, then went back to the hotel room, and I hid the coffee. And my wife is just waking up when I come back, and she looks at me, and the first thing is like one eye's not even open yet. There's only one eye open, and it's scanning the room for the coffee. And she goes, did, did you get my coffee? And I said, nah, there was a line. I didn't get it. And the look of despair, it was literally like you're on a boat in the open ocean and a white shark rams the boat and there's a hole and you're going down and the shark's just waiting there for you to go in the water. It was that level of despair. But here's the deal. Then I went in the other room and I got the coffee and I didn't say anything. And I just came in and I kept, kept talking and she's still laying there stunned paralyzed, petrified that she's going to have to find plan B to get her coffee. And I'm just holding it in my hand. I'm holding the coffee. And she looks up and sees it. And she goes from the depths, the darkest, deepest depths of despair, of like, I don't have the will to live. And in a second and a half is on top of Mount Everest, in just mountain of joy. And she's up there with the flag, the Tibetan flag stuffed in the top. And she's like, I am at peace with the world. That is how, that's how quickly it flipped. That is what being married is about, is about those little moments. If you keep stringing those moments along, your marriage will never be in danger. And here's the thing. If, you're, if your marriage is rocky right now, if, it's, if you're not in a good relationship and you're pissed at your wife and she's pissed at you and you've been pissed for a long time and it's ugly, you have to do this. You have to sit down with yourself and say, look, my life is now what was behind me and what's in front of me. And you just sit with your spouse and you say, look, I feel this is not working. I feel terrible, and we need to remedy this, and I'm at fault. I totally take responsibility. Let's, let's fix this because there's no point in going through life if we're pissed, and then move forward. That's my bit of advice on marriage. You're welcome. Okay, so <clears throat> I want to hit on this very quickly, um, which is the whole impeachment thing. I have not been watching it. I've just been reading about it after the fact because it's just, it's just so idiotic. I can't even comprehend that our government is so broken. But one thing I found interesting, or actually one thing I found not interesting at all, is, the, is how the impeachment material was delivered and how boring and awful it was. And this speaks to the age, the wealth, and the detachment of the people in our government. When I look at the government in the United States, I see old white people. 
and they seem completely detached from society, detached from the reality of everyday people. They don't seem tech savvy. They don't seem hip in any way, shape, or form. For the, for the most part, there are exceptions, but I look at what's happening on both the Democratic side and the Republican side, and I'm like, these are not people who are anyone that I would ever want to hang out with. They don't seem like people who see the world in the same way I do. And when it came time to deliver the information about why they were attempting to impeach Trump, and they had all these quotes, and they had video, and they had stills, and they had everything they could have pulled from, they didn't use any of it. I mean, I think they had one board of quotes. That was it. And I thought, Jesus, man, you, that's, your, that's the visual aid that you're going to use to like sell your impeachment strategy? It was so bad. And frankly, the fact that he's up for to, to being impeached is the least surprising uh, aspect of the political system of my entire lifetime. I mean, we, Donald Trump had a 40-year public track record before he became the nomination, the nominee. We knew who he was 40 years ago. So the idea that he might get impeached during his presidency was the least surprising aspect of the entire thing. If he didn't get impeached during the presidency, it would have been a miracle because the guy is, you know, clearly out of control. And remember, I'm, I, I don't identify as a Republican or a Democrat. I think both parties are so fundamentally flawed. It's impossible for me to look beyond that and say, oh, I'm a true believer in one party or the other. It's always been a lesser of two evils to me. But I just want to remind Republicans, Donald Trump was never a Republican. He is not a Republican now. And I thought about this earlier today. I would not be surprised if Donald, the first time Donald Trump ever voted was as the president. I don't imagine he ever voted in his entire life because he didn't need to. He doesn't, it doesn't matter. Donald Trump has been about Donald Trump for 40 years. So when he came in to the political scene, he chose the Republican side for a variety of different reasons, right? He knew he could get the nomination. They didn't have anybody to beat him. And I think there's a couple of other reasons too. I think he knew that he, it, Trump had, was able to connect with the, the undercurrent of the base, right? It's not that he believes that stuff. It's not that he re actually relates to the base. He just knows how to play him and he does it really well. And so, I think it's weird how quickly the Republicans got behind him. I mean, within, literally, because if you go back to the nomination, uh, guys like Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan said he's unfit and should not serve as president, and 24 hours later, he endorsed Trump for president. Like, that, to me, is, is just baffling, because, again, Trump never identified as a Republican. He was apolitical because he was just about personal financial gain, right? That's for, again, 40 years of public track record. We know what that's about. So it's weird to me um, that how quickly the Republicans got behind him. But again, watching this impeachment process and seeing how like agonizingly non-visual it is or non-recording it is, is driving me a little bit nuts and just reminds me, we have to reinvent the American political system, and we need to get people who are under 40 years old involved. For example, look at what happened in Finland. Look at what happened in New Zealand. Look at Iceland. Look at these countries who are electing people in their 30s and 40s, and you hear them speak, and you see them move through the world and how they see things, and you're like, okay, that gives me a bit of hope. That's, a, that's kind of progressive to me. These are normal people. They at least seem normal. Intelligent. Um, they're good observers, they know their history, and I look at them and I think, man, how come we don't have anybody to vote for that looks like that? Like, how come we can't find these people? We find these career political people with baggage that is just, oof, it, they're baggage that would get you and I fired in a heartbeat.
and yet our political system seems to love it. Okay, moving on, second to last point. I want to talk just super briefly about the New Jersey shooting. And I don't know much about it, but it apparently it was a hate crime directed at a Jewish business or store or deli or something like that. And again, I'm mystified by why this is not more of a story, this anti-Semitic hate crimes that are happening like wildfire all across the country. And this is, this is a serious thing, people. And if you're going to try to downplay this, just go back and look at the statistics, the anti-Semitic attacks in the United States over the last three years. It is staggering. And this, to me, is it's just completely and utterly unacceptable. We cannot allow this to happen. And yet this anti-Semitic fervor seems to be growing. And that is an alarming trend. Whatever you can do to help uh, deflate that fervor, please do, because it's an embarrassment for the country, and it's, it reeks of a time in the past that we all do not want to relive. Know what I mean. Okay, last point. I just did a post today about a book called Shadowlands by Andrew, I think his name is Andrew McCann, M-C-C-A-N-N. I think his first name is Andrew. Anyway, it's called Shadowlands. It's a really interesting take on a story that as I was reading the book, I would ask people around me, hey, you remember that? Remember the time that those guys took over the wildlife refugee in Oregon, the Bundy family? And nobody, nobody knew. Everyone said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. If you haven't read this book and you don't know about the story, it's fascinating. And my review of the book was a disservice because the book is great and I was in a hurry and I made some strange observations from the book. But it's definitely worth reading because the book itself questions, and this is a bit on the political side as well, but it's not, it's not one-sided or the other. It's just about our politics in general. That there is a subset of our culture out there that, that doesn't really recognize the government, right? It, sovereign citizens, for example, who are people that say, well, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a part of the member. I'm not a member of the United States. The courts don't have the ability to, to read the Constitution or recognize the Constitution. I don't recognize the court, blah, blah, blah. Apparently, one of these guys got a parking ticket and, and said, basically, it's not me. And my car got the ticket. It wasn't me. And then argued so long and so feverishly that the judge was like, forget it, and threw out the case kind of thing. But look up Sovereign Citizen. I think that's a pretty interesting aspect. And then the Bundy family, which was started with the father, Cliven Bundy, and then went on to Eamon the son. And Eamon was the one that got involved in the takeover of the wildlife refugee and, and refuge in Oregon, which brought in militia people from all over the country. And the thing is, the whole militia thing and the people who are questioning the foundation of the country, it's not that I believe that people don't have a right to question everything. I think that's absolutely a right that you have. Um, it's this idea that there is an undercurrent in America, and this is the third or fourth book I've read in the last six months that hints about these groups and then also talks about specifics, which is there is a subset of Americans who are waiting for civil war, and they are seriously waiting for civil war. They are armed, they're militias, they're ready to rock and roll, and, and a lot of times it feels as if they have nothing else going on other than this idea that things are unraveling and it's going to be a civil war and they're going to be ready for it. And the thing is, there's a lot of these people out there and they are fairly committed. Some are, some are absolute full commitment and others talk a big game and want to walk around with their AR-15s and body armor and camo and they want to use military jargon and and uh, and sort of act like they're in the in the beginnings of the civil war. But but again, this is the third or fourth book that's come from multiple angles that talks about the same topic. And I, personally, I find it fascinating. Um, if you are one of these militia members, or if you're waiting for civil war, or uh, you've got an interesting take or a story about this, I'd love to hear it. Because um, I'm living in New Mexico now. There are multiple militias here. Obviously, most of the Western states have militia groups um, of various shapes and sizes. 
But it's also interesting to me, and this is the last point I'm going to make, which is it's interesting to me that the system, when questioned, is more fragile than we think it is. And for example, a friend of mine was a political campaign manager for a long time, and and he, oddly enough, he's very neutral when it comes to politics. So even though he worked for different specific campaigns on one side or the other, he doesn't point the finger at the other side and say, oh, they're all wrong or they're all idiots. He's very matter-of-fact about it. And we, um, we've talked about Trump a couple of times, and he said, look, you know, our entire political system is based on the honor system, and all it took was someone without honor to come in and break the whole thing down. And so when these sovereign citizens and when the folks like the Bundys get into the courts and they start questioning things that typically are not questioned, it makes you realize that our entire system is incredibly fragile, which I find wildly interesting. Because again, as a kid growing up in the States, you know, you're taught to believe, oh, we're the best country in the world and blah, blah, blah. And I think this is a great country for a myriad of reasons. But, you know, it's not perfect. There is no such thing as a perfect country. I think our systems are flawed. I think our, our politics are flawed, et cetera, et cetera. But I found the whole questioning of the foundation very, very interesting. It's, it's fodder that makes me think, it makes me write, and it makes me want to go out and make photographic essays that reflect some of these topics. Because I think it's just, just straight documentation of who these people are. Because I don't look at these people, the militia folks or the Bundys, and I go, oh, these people are crazy or they're idiots or whatever. I don't. I look and I say, look, they have conviction about a specific belief. That belief might be entirely in opposition to my belief, but they have conviction. So my job as a photographer, as an observer of the world, is to understand their position. It's not to point fingers. It's not to say, oh, this is bad. It's to say, why do you believe that? And educate me as to why you believe that. And as human beings, we should be able to sit in a room together, disagree, educate one another and walk out better people instead of drawing a line in the sand, pointing fingers, calling names and creating drama that might eventually lead to something like a civil war, which would totally suck because my YouTube numbers, if we have a civil war, my YouTube channel is screwed. I mean, there's no possible way I can keep to my production studio. I can't sell you a bunch of filters you don't need. I mean, come on people, we can't have a civil war for that reason alone. So thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate it. That's 38 minutes of pure joy here at WMTE and uh, outside of Santa Fe. It's my own private radio station. So again, I, I uh, appreciate you tuning in. I'll be back with more thoughts, anything you want me to cover. How about this? Write me in, and I'll do a car review on the next, the next time. Any car, whatever car you're driving, you think it's good, you think it sucks, you're thinking about buying a car and you want to know my thoughts about a car, let's try that. Why not? I have no history in the automotive industry. I'm no expert, but I'll give you my opinion about what to buy and what not to buy. Thanks. Talk to you soon.